audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Our text this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 3, and we're going to read chapter 3 all the way to the beginning of chapter 4. And it reads this way, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent visions. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. And so he went and lay down. And the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not know yet, uh, did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel uh, said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, which the two ears of everyone who hears, it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against uh, against Eli and all uh, that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because of his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or uh, by offering forever." Samuel lay down, uh, lay until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, here I am, and Eli said, what, uh, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me, all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything. And hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what, he seems, what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord uh, was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And now the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Um, First Samuel chapter 3, kind of continuing on where we've been the last couple of weeks in this book. 
again, if you haven't listened to those, I encourage you to go back because this is a one flowing thought. You know, each sermon is is each in its own, has its own points and all those things, but we are in a narrative here. We're in a story. So if you missed some of the story, I encourage you to go back, hear those pieces. But at this point, 1 Samuel chapter 3, Elkanah and Hannah, Samuel's parents, have faded into the distance, at least directly. I'm sure their influence was all over Samuel's life as he grew and matured. But today, we start focusing in on the boy, Samuel, him directly, maturing into a man, into the prophet of God. In our text for this morning, Samuel, probably about 12 years old here, He's transformed from a boy into a prophet, from a na'ar, the Hebrew word for boy, to a navi, the Hebrew word for prophet. From one ignorant of the word of the Lord to, by the end of our chapter, the one speaking the words of the Lord. The transformations continue to permeate our pages. Hannah in the first two chapters being transformed, her prayer being transformed from chapter one to chapter two, and here we have Samuel being transformed as well by the end of our chapter. And undergirding our text for this morning, something that we read and oftentimes, at least I do, take for granted, is the reality of a God who speaks, a God who condescends to speak in a language that we will understand. He foregoes speaking in the language of the heavenly places to speak in English or in Spanish or in Mandarin or whatever our language is we choose to commune with him in. God's speaking is an act of grace, for he could have remained silent when sin entered the garden. He could have remained quiet and let us grope in the darkness, trying to find a remedy for our sin. But as he spoke to bring about the world in the created order, so he speaks again and chooses to recreate his people. You know, I've always been fascinated by by words, you know, intrigued on how uh, words came into being, the etymology. I'm kind of a loser and a nerd, but how they kind of evolved over time to mean what they do today, you know. Words have value. It's hard to believe that in our culture today because words are so cheap now, but words actually do have value. They mean something. You know, people have shed their blood. They've lost their lives to preserve certain words, to say certain things, right? I mean, John Wycliffe, we talk about the scriptures. John Wycliffe and William Tyndale are just two countless individuals who literally died horrific deaths to preserve what we have here before us in the word of the Lord. You know, words can build up. You know, although one of the uh, love languages is words of affirmation, um, I mean, who doesn't like to be affirmed, right? I mean, I'm like, who doesn't like all these things? Um, But who doesn't like to be encouraged for a job well done? You know, who doesn't like to be told by someone that they're being prayed for, thought about, or cared for? You know, words can also wound. You know, words can tear down. You know, gossip, backbiting, slander, libel, I mean, some of us in this room, we still have words in our minds spoken to us by people that we valued, whose opinions we valued at least at one point in our lives, you know, whether they be parents or pastors or teachers or spouses. Words that were said in anger or in spite to hurt us, to remind us of our failings, to remind us of our past mistakes. Some of us still carry those words. Some of those words have defined us. Is this hitting the microphone, the jacket? Yes? Okay, sorry. 
ignore me for a second. I'm going to take the jacket off. Um, I know, yeah, thank you, thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> All right, words can instill hope. I don't want it to be distracting. That might have been distracting, but oh well. Um, words can instill hope. You know, we've talked before about why we make promises to each other, right? And we make promises to each other to instill hope in one another and hope in our words, hope that we'll follow through in what we say. You know, leaders and politicians use words to try and instill hope. Some succeed, some fail. I think about the words, you know, I have a dream that one day white men, black men, Jews, Gentiles, Protestants, Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty. We are free at last, right? Martin Luther King Jr. It's hope. Words can inflict fear, right? Threats, warnings, judgments. Think about the two words. Here's Johnny. And every time I hear those words, I'm terrified because I heard them first when I was a little kid. And I see this image of Jack Nicholson's face staring at me through a chopped door. And it terrifies me, right? Words can instill fear. Words can tell stories, they can utter commands, they can describe something magnificent, they can teach something to be learned. And language has its origin in God. For we, first point of our time together, we have a God who speaks. God says words. He speaks things. You know, three verses into the Bible... Genesis chapter 1, we have a God who opens his mouth and speaks, and things begin to happen. Like things happen every time when God speaks. Now, the Lord talks about this 100% effectiveness of his word in Isaiah 55, 11, probably a familiar verse to us, when he says, my word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God says of his own word, it's 100% effective. Whatever I say I will do, I will do. I have my purposes, I have my ways, and I will accomplish all that I intend to accomplish. And God in making man and woman in his image, gives us the ability to communicate, to speak, for he is a speaking God. And he not only gave us the ability to speak to one another, but he gave us, at least before Genesis chapter 3, he gave us the ears and the hearts and the mouths to be able to communicate back and forth with God, the creator of all things. God speaks all things into existence with his word, and he uses that same voice to speak to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And it's only God's mercy and his grace, as we said before, that is the reason he continues to speak in Genesis 3. And it's only because of his mercy and his grace that he chooses to continue to speak to us today, primarily through his word. You know, as I said before, words are valuable, and the amount of blood spilt to preserve this book throughout the annals of time would blow us away. But this is more than simply black words on a white page. These are the very words of the living God. 
all of them once audibly spoken, and they are intended to draw us up into communication with him. And how often do these words of grace and comfort and warning and freedom and life, how often do they collect dust on our shelves? You know, these pages that many in this world would willingly give their lives, all things to obtain, these pages, how often do we just nonchalantly flip through them, looking for neat tips and tricks on living, rather than being drawn up into the mystery and the wonder and the awe of a God who spoke them into being? The words God chooses and the words God has chosen They speak to us. To speak to us are not primarily intended to help us have happy marriages and obedient children and success in our careers and flourishing retirements. No, the living words on this page spoken by the mouth of the living God are intended to bring you to an end of yourself and to find your true self in the God who spoke them. We need revelation of a God who is there and speaks, not merely information about him. God's words can transform us, not for the sake of our own kingdom building, but for the sake of his kingdom and his glory in this world. And God's words that have that transformative power that we've already seen in 1 Samuel They continue to have that transformative power here in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Read with me again, verses 1 through 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days, for there was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So remember last week at the end of chapter 2, or really all throughout chapter 2, we saw this contrast between the family of Elkanah, Samuel's family, and the family of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas in particular. And the theme, that theme here, this theme of contrast, continues to carry forward here in the first three verses of chapter 3. Samuel's ministering in his youth. Eli is losing his eyesight in his old age, lying down in his own place, unable to do the priestly work because he's physically unable to do so. But it's not just a physical contrast that's being presented here. I mean, there's double entendre all throughout these first three verses. The reference to Eli's eyesight growing dim, the reference to Eli sleeping away from the ark, away from the presence of the Lord, the references to the lamp of God that had not yet gone out. These aren't just time markers. They're not just proximity markers. They are assessments of the spiritual health and vitality of Israel and its current priests. Eli's not only physically going blind, he's spiritually losing his eyesight as well. For the word of the Lord, as it says there, was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. A phrase in the Old Testament is indicative of divine displeasure. You know, if the people 
were not conducting themselves like the people of God ought to in accordance with his law, with his word. God would withdraw his restraining hand from them. And they will begin to cycle down and degenerate into chaos and confusion and depravity. You have the book of Judges. But Eli here, the priest, he's not only unable to physically see, but he no longer possesses the spiritual vision needed to lead the people towards God. But even in the midst of the spiritual darkness, Yahweh is positioning Samuel to hear and receive his words. It's getting Samuel ready to be able to hear when he calls. You know, it's hard to hear somebody when uh, other distractions, distractions are occupying our ears, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have like an AirPod in. Christine's trying to talk to me about something. I'm listening to a you know, podcast while we're laying in the bed or folding laundry or something that I'm, I'm like doing three things at one time, uh, but I'm distracted, right? I can't hear her. I feel like in our world, we hear everything and yet we hear nothing. We consume words through our eyes, reading them, or through our ears, hearing them, yet we retain nothing. They don't change us. You know, if God is a God who speaks, second point, then our ears must be poised to hear. Samuel's ears were poised to hear in verses one through three. Let me show you how. Let us learn from him. First, we must be pursuing holiness. Pursuing holiness. Samuel is ministering to the Lord. You know, he's doing the work of a priest, and based off of what we know of him so far, he's actually conducting his life with the utmost morality as well, in accordance with God's law. You know, the, the work that he's doing as a priest is he's keeping the lamp lit in the tent of meeting during these pre-dawn hours of the morning. You know, the law directed the lamp to be lit all night and put out at sunrise when the sun would come up. So Samuel here is up in the late hours of the night or early hours in the morning, however you want to see that, keeping the commands of God to the priests. You know, being holy, it's a word we talked a lot about last week. I encourage you to go back and listen. But being holy, pursuing holiness as the people of God, it's both an active and a passive pursuit, right? Now let me, hear, let me say this before I get into this. Uh, I want to be very clear, Christianity is not a works-based righteousness, right? We are not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's how we are justified. That's how we're made right with God. We don't earn our right standing with God. He gives it to us in his grace. But to grow in our Christian faith, this big word, sanctification, being more, made more holy, right? Being holier and holier, so to speak. To grow in our intimacy with Christ, we do partner with the Holy Spirit in that. I mean, think about how many of Paul's letters are arranged. You know, Ephesians, for example. First three chapters of Ephesians, this is who you are. Indicative, right? This is who you are. By grace, through faith in Christ, this is who you are. And then the last three chapters of Ephesians is, now this is what you do. This is who you are. Now act in what you do. And through being and through doing, we are growing in holiness, Growing in holiness. The Bible's full of all these God-ordained means that he has called us to put on and to use in order to grow in holiness. 
prayer, attending the worship gathering, being in the word, confessing sin. I mean, on and on we could go. If we truly want to till the field, 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 F-I-E-L-D, if we want to till it and hear from God, church, then we must be holy, pursuing holiness for God to be actively working in us and among us. We are holy, we are set apart for a purpose, but we are being made holy as well. Now, we're not going to become holy, you know, more Christ-like simply by osmosis. The Christian life is a disciplined life. You know, Jerry Bridges, in his book, Pursuing Holiness, actually put this as a further resource in the newsletter last week. It's a classic. It's a must-read. He says this. He says, God does not require a perfect, sinless life to have fellowship with him, but he does require that we be serious about holiness that we grieve over sin in our lives instead of justifying it, and that we earnestly pursue holiness as a way of life. If you want to hear a word from the Lord, if we want to have life breathed into our lives, into our families, our church, our communities, if we truly want to experience the fullness of joy found in Jesus Christ, we must be actively running after holiness and killing sin in our lives. I mean, John Owen, famous quote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin is not passive. And we are not called to be passive as well. Samuel was pursuing holiness, seeking to obey God and honor God in his life. Second, second thing to prepare our ears to hear from the Lord is we must be expectant. We must be expectant. Eli was not expecting to hear from the Lord. Visions were rare. Word of the Lord was rare. Even in how he's slow to understand who's actually calling Samuel, right? In verses four through nine shows us that he is implicitly not expecting for God to speak. Right? I mean, as far as we know, they're the only two in the temple. And if Samuel's coming to Eli going, hey, you called for me, either Samuel's hearing voices or the Lord is speaking to him. And initially, Samuel isn't poised to hear from the Lord either. You know, verse 7 says, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Right? That the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. We'll come back to that in a second. But Samuel is able to hear and discern the voice of the Lord when he is finally in a place of expectation. It takes Samuel four times. You know, sometimes it takes us a hundred times to hear from the Lord. It takes Samuel four times to be able to recognize the voice of the Lord. But the fourth time, Samuel's ready to hear from the Lord. You know, when we come to God's word during the week, you know, assuming we do, when we come to God's word during the week, what are we expecting to happen? I mean, are we anticipating anything as we crack open the book, as we rustle through its pages, as we read over the written word once spoken? I mean, what's in our minds as we're doing that? What, is, what are we hoping will happen? What are we hoping to find? You know, when we walk through those back doors on any given Sunday, singing the words of these songs, hearing the words of these prayers, sitting underneath the words of this book, 
Are we anticipating anything to happen? Or have we just become numb to it? Are our lives, is our church a place where the word of the Lord is rare and there is no frequent vision? Eli and his sons, they had the law. We have the Bible. But it's one thing to possess it. It's quite another thing to see its power. Do we believe God still speaks? I mean, do we believe God still gives visions? Do we believe God still wants to reveal himself to us? Do we believe God still desires not only to communicate with us collectively, but to communicate with you, individually, you? Do you believe that? Every single time we open our Bibles, every single time we come into this gathering space, please, I beg you, please be praying and anticipating and expecting God to do something. Please, may we not let our eyesight grow so dull and our spiritual senses become so calloused with information that we simply don't expect God to do anything anymore. God still speaks, church. And he speaks to us primarily through what he has spoken. Expect him to continue speaking and transforming us through his words to us. And yeah, we gotta be expectant. We gotta be ready for him. And the third way, third way we position ourselves to hear. We must be near the Lord. We must be near the Lord. Now this text tells us that Samuel is near the ark of God. Now this visible representation of God's presence with his people. And I'm not going to belabor this point. Uh, we talked a little bit about it last week when we discussed intimacy with Christ over our activity for Christ. But are we consistently drawn near to Christ in our lives? Are you? Am I? Are we making time for him on a daily basis? You know, we need, we need daily bread, church, not weekly bread. Not bi-monthly bread. If we physically only ate one day a week, I mean, our bodies over time would break down. We would be so physically unhealthy and malnourished I mean, what makes us think we can spiritually eat one or two days a week and expect to be vibrant spiritually? We must continue to intimately draw near to Christ, for he says that when we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Lord, make our ears ready to hear from you. We gotta speed up. We gotta go faster. Undergirding point one, all right? That was point one. Undergirding point one, implicit in this point of God speaking, is the assumption that we have new ears, all right? New hearts. For point two, to hear God speaking, we need new ears or new hearts that come with new ears. We need, we need to be recreated, all right? Verses four through 14, the Lord calls Samuel, calls once. Samuel thinks it's Eli, goes to Eli. Eli tells him he didn't call. 
Lord calls a second time, same thing, goes to Eli. Eli says once again, hey, it's not me talking to you, go back to bed. And then after the second call, as we said already in verse 7, we see that Samuel didn't have the ears to hear, right? He needed God to provide him supernatural hearing to understand the word of the Lord. The Lord calls a third time. Samuel goes to Eli, and finally, Eli suspects something's up, tells Samuel the Lord's calling him. Finally gets it, that if he hears God call again to respond with, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, or your servant hears. Samuel obeys Eli, he goes back to bed, he waits for the Lord. And in between call three and four, God gives him new ears and a new heart. God calls to him in verse 10. Says the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, which is the same way he called Moses, which is interesting. Come back to that in a second. Samuel, Samuel. Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. And God gives him a message that we'll take a look at here in just a second. But I love that response to the call of God from Samuel. Eli's still giving some good wisdom here. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That's such a humble response, is it not? And I encourage you this week as you come to God's word, before you even open the book, pray that prayer. Just voice that prayer. Speak, Lord, for your servant here. Speak, Lord, for your servant here. Before you even open the Bible, speak, Lord, for your servant here. And it's in that prayer, that phrase, where we see that hearing from the Lord, it assumes three things, three things. First, it assumes that God desires to communicate, right? It's one thing that God speaks. It's another thing for him to desire to speak. You know, we've already hit on this a little bit, but God desires to speak to you. You know, by starting a prayer with speak, you're assuming God desires to speak, right? And we have salvation history pounding this truth into our brains. God speaks to his people, as we said before, in Genesis 1 and 2. He continues to speak to them in their rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. He speaks to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all throughout the book of Genesis, making unreal promises to them that he fulfills every single time. He gives his people the law, his written words that he spoke to Moses, the words there to live by. He sends priest and prophet to teach and proclaim God's spoken word to his people century after century after century. He sends Jesus to be the word of God, right, to proclaim the very words of God as God himself. If God had no desire to communicate with us, he would have let us die in our sin. He desires to communicate. He's demonstrated and continues to demonstrate this time and time again. The second assumption this prayer makes, speak, Lord, for your servant hears, is that Yahweh, God, is Lord of our lives. It's assumed here. It assumes we're his people, that he is our Lord. This prayer assumes the posture of, one, of the one praying of humility, as I said before, the selflessness of the prayer. You know, the guiding assumption is that the God who desires to speak is one I will bring my life into submission to. Regardless of how unpopular, regardless of how much pressure I may feel, or the cost of my obedience, this prayer assumes Yahweh is Lord of my life in all ways. And in all things. And then the third assumption is this, that we are willing to obey what he says. 
Your servant, your servant hears. It's listening. It's one thing to hear something. It's another thing to act upon what you hear. We are his servants if we are in Christ Jesus. God, by his very nature, is owed the allegiance and obedience by every single person who has ever walked the face of this planet. And we, who have put all our eggs in the Jesus basket for our salvation, we have acknowledged his lordship and given him the right to tell us how we should live. We have said, you tell us how we should live, we will conform to what you say. Oftentimes we have it the other way around. We cannot pray this prayer with Samuel if we do not believe that God still speaks, if we've not come under his lordship and if we're not willing to alter our lives to fit the words he speaks to us. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And the third major point here. Not only does God speak, not only do we need ears and hearts to hear, but when he speaks, our listening should be marked by courage and humility. Our listening should be marked by courage and humility. Samuel's listening is marked by courage. Eli's response to Samuel's message is marked by humility. This message Samuel received in verses 11 to 14, it's a confirmation of the unnamed prophet's message to Eli, right, at the end of chapter 2. This message that God's judgment is about to fall on the house of Eli, that his sons are about to die at the hands of the Lord, and his house forevermore will no longer serve as priest of Yahweh. And then read with me again verses 15 to 18. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, another double entendre there, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, he said, here I am. And Samuel said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he, Eli, said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. I want you to think about Samuel's predicament here for just a second. It's around 12 years old. He's been fathered and mentored by this aging priest, physically and spiritually fathered and mentored. And the first message God chooses to give this boy is one of judgment upon the house of his spiritual mentor. Verse 15 says, Samuel laid by the ark until the morning, but he was afraid to tell Eli what he heard. Understatement, right? I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation in life where roles have been reversed like this. Maybe as an adult, you've had to correct your parents on something massive, or maybe you have to take care of them in their old age. You've assumed the role of parent to your parents. And that can be sometimes scary and very disorienting. It can be very difficult to say or do what needs to be done in those moments. Or maybe you've been spiritually mentored by somebody, maybe somebody in this body, and that person has walked away from Christ, made decisions that are contrary to his word, and you are the one having to step into the role of spiritual mentor and leader and call your own mentor back to the gospel. 
You have to say a hard thing or deliver a hard message that may or may not be rejected. You may or may not be rejected. Multiply that by a thousand, and here's Samuel. This 12-year-old kid who's about to tell his mentor that God's going to kill his whole house. For Samuel, this is a test. It's his first test. Can he, as the prophet of God, deliver hard messages to a wayward people? Will he be constrained by the fear of God and God's glory and his word enough to proclaim the truth to a straying people no matter the cost? If Samuel can't deliver this message to Eli, he's not worthy to be God's prophet. But he does do it. He gives it. And Eli's response is exemplary. It's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. In a day of salvation history when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, Eli humbles himself before the king and submits to what is right in the king's eyes. Not his own. There will be times in our lives when someone will deliver a hard message to us. A time when the word we hear from the Lord through someone else will cause us to bristle, to feel uncomfortable. Something that clashes with our own sense of our own kind of facade of what we've created, of what is right and wrong. It's going to happen for you. It's going to happen for me. If it hasn't already, it will happen. What will our response be? Defensiveness, arrogance, pushback, rejection of that person, isolation from that person? Or will it be humility and acceptance, gratitude for the courage of the deliverer of the message? Thankfulness to God for being merciful to us and sending us anyone to begin with. May God give us courage to deliver hard truths and the humility to believe them when we hear them. God speaks. We position ourselves to hear with new ears. We rejoice in God. Finally, we rejoice in God for sending Jesus, the ultimate word from God. Verses 19 through 4.1. Let me read it for us again. Samuel grew. The Lord was with him. Let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as the prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, the very first week of our study, I mentioned that the writers, writers or writer of 1 Samuel, put Moses and Samuel side by side in a variety of places throughout these two books. This is one of those times. Samuel's the first named male prophet since Moses. You've had some people that have prophesied, but nobody's been called a prophet here, named prophet since Moses, and this is the first time. 
Now Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 22 that a prophet was coming like him. One who could speak words that God himself put into his mouth. That all of this prophet's prophecies would prove true and lasting. And in a day when a word from the Lord was rare, when visions were infrequent, this chapter ends with God's words coming to the entire nation through this boy, now man, Samuel, the kingmaker, the prophet of God in Israel. But all of these descriptions from Deuteronomy and all these descriptions of Samuel, even in these verses, they're a mere precursor for the word of God, Jesus Christ. The word of God was with human skin on, right? It's interesting. I read this the other day. The only words Jesus actually wrote down that we have in preservation are words we don't even know what they were. He wrote in the dust, in the dirt, right? Jesus spoke words that God put into his mouth. And by God's grace, men recorded what he said. But Jesus Christ, the word of God with human skin on, was said of Samuel that the Lord was with him. And of Christ, Luke tells us the same thing. Luke chapter 5. Jesus is going around healing the multitudes. And Luke tells us that this was accomplished because the Lord was with him. It was said of Samuel that all his words proved true, that none of them fell to the ground. But in Jesus, not only did all the words of Jesus prove true, but Jesus Christ himself was the embodiment of truth. You know, when when the word of God became flesh, John chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus didn't only speak truth, but he was the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He was full of truth. It didn't just come out of his mouth. It filled him up. Samuel was a prophet like Moses. Jesus is not simply a prophet like Moses. He's all that Moses pointed to. He's the final Moses. Hebrews 3, 3 through 6 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was a prophet. Jesus was the son. And it was said that the Lord revealed himself to and through Samuel in these verses, but this was only a partial revelation, for in Christ God revealed himself fully. Colossians 1, 19 through, excuse me, 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, things in heaven, things on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Samuel could only proclaim God's reconciliation. Only Jesus could fully accomplish that reconciliation. God still speaks, Emmanuel Church, and he speaks to us regularly in the person of Jesus Christ. May we have the ears to hear, the disposition to hear and be transformed when he does. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Let's pray together.
Father, when I think about your word to us, your grace and your mercy and speaking to us, I think about the end of John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then explains that food is only temporary, that they need to feast on Christ for their eternal life, and many of them left. Father, it makes me think about Christ when he turns to his disciples and says, will you leave too? Peter responds and said, to where shall we go? You're the only one that has the words of eternal life. Where else will we go, O God? If you cease speaking, we might as well stop coming here. Father, we know that you have spoken to us in Christ, and we pray, Lord, pray that through the Holy Spirit you continue to reveal your word to us and change us. Let us get rid of all the noise, all the distractions, all the things in our lives that don't prime us to hear from you. May we remove sin. May we pursue holiness. May we fight the fight of faith. Our enemy is looking to kill us and to steal from us and to destroy us. He is active in all his pursuits of us. May we be active in our pursuits of you. Thank you for Samuel. Thank you for the prophet. Thank you for his obedience. Give us the courage and the humility we need to proclaim and sit under the good, life-giving, yet sometimes hard words of the scriptures. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.